Hey, everybody. Hey, thank you. It is so great to be back, not only to be back in town after a, a vacation, but it's great to be back teaching live at our West Campus here in beautiful Graniteville, South Carolina. I'm so excited to be here, but I have to tell you the truth. The real reason why I'm here in person today is because I heard a rumor that your campus pastor was brandishing a sword on this very stage a couple of weeks ago. And so I'm here to check it out, see what's really going on over here at the West Campus. I'll be taking witness statements after uh, the service today. No, it is great to be here. Great to have all of our campuses joining us. I want to welcome those of you that are at Banks Mill, the Ridge, and as all of you who are joining us online as well. I'm really glad you're here, wherever here happens to be for you today. You know, it was exactly 20 years ago this week that our nation experienced the first presidential election in modern history that was so close that it literally took weeks of counting and a Supreme Court decision to determine who won that race, right? Some of you remember that, Bush, Gore, 2000, the Florida recounts, the hanging chads, and it, it was so weird to us, right? Because we are so used to knowing either on election night or maybe at worst case scenario, early the next morning, who won. But our nation was so evenly divided that after millions and millions of votes, it literally came down to a couple of hundred votes in a few districts in Florida. We have been a divided nation for two decades. In fact, in the 20 years since that election, we had eight consecutive years of a Republican president, followed by eight consecutive years of a Democratic president, followed by three and a half years of a real estate mogul turned reality star as a president. And my point is this that the divisions that exist in our nation have less to do with who's sitting in the White House and more to do with what's going on in our house. We've been divided for a long time, but over the last several years, we've moved from just being a divided nation to being an incredibly divisive nation. It's almost impossible for us now to sit down and have civil conversation and debate over issues that we disagree on. We don't even seem capable. You know that old phrase, uh, agree to disagree without being disagreeable? That sounds about as flippant as a, a beauty queen pageant talking about wanting to bring world peace, right? Everybody says it, but nobody actually does anything about it. In fact, we are conditioned and now respond to people who think and act and vote differently than us. We see them not as good people who just have a different point of view. We now see them as evil people who are destroying our country and therefore must be destroyed by us, either virtually on Facebook or in person on the streets of our cities all across our nation. Listen, there is no doubt we are living in the age of rage. The question is, for us as Christ followers, how do we respond? 
How do we live out our faith in this age of rage? And that's what this outrage series is all about. For the next month, we're going to explore practical ways that we as Christ followers can live and love like Jesus in the midst of the rage and divisions and divisiveness that are happening all around us. And here's the good news. God's Word is full of clear instructions as to how we are to live out our faith in a hostile culture. And it starts by being different from the culture around us. In fact, notice what the Bible says, Romans 12, 2. Don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world. Don't do what everybody else is doing. Instead, let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. You want to know God's will for your life? It's to be different than the culture around you. To not let the culture shape you, but to shape the culture by being different from the culture. Listen, dream with me for a minute. Imagine the impact we as Christians could have if we truly loved and valued people who were different from us. Imagine the impact we could have if we were actually kind to the people who are cruel to us. Imagine the impact it would make if we faced the uncertainties and the chaos in our circumstances with peace and joy and hope rather than fear and anger. Listen, the more countercultural we live, I can promise you the more attractive we'll be to the people around us. And isn't that what we're called to do? I mean, this is not just a good idea. This is our life's mission as Christ followers. Helping people find their way back to God means being willing to love, care, connect, and have civil conversations with people who are far from God. In fact, the more counter-cultural we live, the more effective we'll be at the mission God has called us to. In fact, look what the Bible says in Philippians chapter 2. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. That's pretty countercultural, isn't it? Do everything without grumbling and arguing. Why? So that you may become blameless and pure. Children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And so what I want to do today as we kick off this series is I want to unpack this passage because I think it shows us four ways to live out this counter-cultural mission that God has called all of us as Christ followers to. Four things we can all do to live a counter-cultural mission. You ready? Number one, the first thing you have to do is just recognize that you're on a mission. I have to recognize that I am on a mission. You'll never live out your mission unless you choose to believe that you have a mission in this world. And if you are a Christ follower, you have a mission. 
In the words of those great theologians, the Blues Brothers from Chicago, we are on a mission from God. And that mission is now. The mission is not something you used to have back in the good old days. The mission is not something in your past that you were on before you retired. Your mission is not something you're going to have when you finally get your life together or when things finally go back to normal. Your mission is right now, in this time, in this season, in this place. The Bible is crystal clear that God determines the times and the places where man is, where you were born. You were born into this time, this place, this culture to be used by God to make a difference with the truth of the gospel to the people around you. The mission is now not a year from now or five years from now when things maybe go back. To, I'm pretty sure things are never going back to normal. You know, it's interesting to me that when Jesus was arrested and crucified, his disciples, the 11 that were remaining, were so overwhelmed by the animosity of the culture around them. They were so overwhelmed because their own people, the Jewish religious leaders, were out to get them and the hated Roman oppressors, the entire Roman Empire. Everything's against them. Everything's going bad around them. It's no wonder they ended up hiding out behind locked doors, huddled, scared to death. And do you know what Jesus does after his, resur his resurrection? He steps into that room and listen to what he says to them, John 20, 21. Jesus said, peace be with you. Lord knows they needed some peace. But then look at what he says. As the Father has sent me, I am what? What does it say? I am sending you. In other words, you can't hide from the culture around you. You have to go out into the culture around you. And I think some of us, if we're honest, we have been responding to the rage and the chaos around us by hiding from it, by isolating from it. I'm not talking about being safe during the pandemic. I'm not talking about social distancing and quarantining when you've been exposed. I'm talking about cocooning ourselves in our comfortable little Christian culture with our comfortable little Christian friends who look and think and act and vote the way that we do. And we're hiding behind locked rooms. And I believe Jesus would step into this place today and said, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you now out into the chaos. In fact, look what the Bible says. 2 Corinthians 5.20 it says, so we are Christ ambassadors. God is making His appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. We can't help people who are far from God find their way back to God unless we are willing to love and value and connect with people who are far from God and different from us. We're on a mission. Whether you want to, whether you like it, if you're following Jesus, you are on a mission. So here's my question. What would this look like for you this week? What would it look like for you to acknowledge and begin to live 
like you are on a countercultural mission from God. Maybe for a lot of us, it might be stop fighting political battles on Facebook and actually spend some time getting face-to-face with a neighbor or a co-worker who looks and thinks and votes different than we do. Maybe it might mean looking past our own experiences to recognize that there is pain and struggle in people around us even if we don't know that same pain and same struggle. You're on a mission. What would that look like for you? If we're going to live out a counter-cultural mission, we need to recognize that we're on a mission. And number two, this is going to really get tough. Stop arguing and complaining. Stop arguing and complaining. See, now I've gone from preaching to meddling. Right? I mean, talk about being counter-cultural. If there's one thing our culture loves and is really good at, is arguing and complaining, right? It's the whole business model of Facebook. It's what passes for national news these days, right? I mean, turn on any cable news network. I don't care if it's left or right or up or down. You'll see the same thing. Either a talking head complaining about how bad things are or a panel of people on two different sides of an issue yelling and screaming at one another. Listen, those of us who are old, listen, I get it. We long for the good old days of Walter Cronkite and the evening news, right? Where we could turn on the news and somebody that we trusted just simply informed us of what's going on around us. But let me tell you something. We're never going back. Walter Cronkite's dead, but let me tell you something. Honest reporting in the media is dead and gone. The media will never change the culture. Do you know why? Because the media just reflects the culture that is. Do you know why there's so much complaining and arguing on cable news network? Because we watch it. They're in the entertainment business. They're selling advertising. They're selling our eyeballs, our time and attention. They just reflect what's already going on in our life. The media can't change the culture, but the church and the gospel can if we're willing to live and love differently. Notice what Paul writes, verses 14 and 15. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Why? So that you may become blameless and pure. Key word, become. It's a process, right? You're not going to wake up one day and magically be blameless and pure and therefore able to stop complaining and arguing. But you can choose daily to stop complaining and stop arguing. And as you do, you will become more and more blameless and pure, more different, more unique, more standing out in the culture around you. So here's a tough question to wrestle with. I've been wrestling with it all week. Figured I'd invite you to join me in it. The question is this. What do you need to stop arguing and complaining about? Where do you need to stop fighting battles that really aren't going to change a thing, much less somebody's mind? What do you need to stop complaining about? Politics, your choices for president, your spouse, your kids, your neighbor, your co-worker, 
your boss. Look, I don't know what you need to stop complaining and arguing about, but I do know this. The less we complain and argue, the more true impact we can have in the culture around us. And that really leads to number three. The third thing we have to do to live out a counter-cultural mission is to stand out when we stand up. To stand out when we stand up. What I mean by that is that as Christians, we are most known in the world around us by what we are against. We are most known about the things we don't agree with. We are very good at standing up against things that are contradictory to God's Word. And we should. We should stand on God's unchanging truth. It is part of our calling as Christians, but it is not the only part. It's not all that we're called to do. As Christians, we have been called to love people and to tell them the truth. The problem is we've gotten really good at telling people the truth, and I think we have forgotten how to love people, especially people who are different than us. When we take a stand as Christians, imagine what it would be like if we did it in a way that stood out against the backdrop of the culture. Great example of this. Some of you may remember the church shootings in Charleston several years ago. A white supremacist by the name of Dylan Roof drove from Lexington, South Carolina to downtown Charleston on a Wednesday night. And he walked into Mother Emanuel African American Church on that Wednesday night. And there was a small group of people holding a Bible study. And you know how they responded to this white boy who looked different than him? They invited him in. They made him a part of their family for that night. They loved on him and cared for him. And do you know how he repaid that kindness? When they bowed their heads in prayer to close that Bible study, he pulled out a pistol and unloaded multiple clips, killing nine people that day. But do you remember what happened after that? When he was captured and when they had his arraignment, do you remember what the family members of the victims did? One by one, in a courtroom and on national television, they forgave him. And it shocked the world. It stopped the world. Everybody everywhere was looking and going, wow, what is that? I've never seen anything like that. That's what I mean by standing out when we stand up. It will get the attention much louder than your Facebook rants or your screaming at Fox News or CNN when you're watching it. That's why Paul says this in verse 15 and 16. It says, So that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. Two weeks ago, Terry and I were visiting some friends of ours out west. And I don't know if you've ever been to Montana, northern Idaho, but the night sky out there is a whole lot different than the night sky here. I remember the first time I saw it, I stepped out on the balcony of the place we were staying. I looked up and I thought, dear Lord, 
Look at all those stars. God must love these people more than He loves us in Achan because He put a hundred times more stars in the sky here than He did in Achan. But that's not the truth, is it? You know why there's so many more stars in Montana? Because it's so much darker in Montana. The less light pollution, the less crowded, the less lights you have around you, the easier it is to see those stars. And let me tell you, I believe with all my heart that the darker our world becomes, the greater our opportunity as Christians to truly shine. But if we're going to do that, if we're going to live out this countercultural mission, if we're going to stand up by standing out, if we're going to look and love differently, we can't do that on our own. That's why the fourth thing we have to do is hold firmly to God's truth. To hold firmly to God's truth. Because looking and living different is not something we are capable of in our own strength, in our own selves. We have to anchor to something bigger than ourselves. Those family members of the victims of the Charleston church shooting, they weren't standing up and offering forgiveness in their own strength. That, my friends, is what the power of the Holy Spirit looks like when you let it control you, when you let Him be your anchor. That's why Paul says, verse 15 and 16, you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. As you hold firmly. You can't stand out without holding tight to Jesus, to the unchanging truth of His Word, and to each other. We can't do this as individuals. we got to hold on to each other and march together as one church, as one family, linking arms to be different, to show radical love in this age of rage. That's why being connected is so important in a home group. You get out there on your own, you're like a log that falls out of the campfire. It'll burn for a little while, but it's eventually burning out. But you keep it with all the other logs, and together it is a brighter, brighter flame. I love this next verse, Philippians 1.27. This is your verse for this coming week for the election week. Write this down, post it on your TV or your car. Here it goes, Philippians 1.27. Whatever happens, whatever happens on Tuesday or in the days or weeks following, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Stand firm, not in an election, not in the direction of a country. Stand firm in the one spirit striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. You know, we, we have this tendency to think of deep faith, of spiritual maturity as being built on Bible knowledge. Like the more you know of what's in here, the, the more spiritually mature you are. But let me tell you something, you can know the answer to every Bible trivia question. You can know all about the Amicalites and the Jebusites and the Mosquito Bites and everybody else in the Bible. But if you don't love, you have no depth to your faith. And we love not based on how people treat us, but on who ultimately loves 
us. Notice 1 John 4.19. We love because He first loved us. I want to close with a story. It actually is a true story from our Christian history. Most people have this idea, believe this myth, this urban legend, that the early Christian church exploded in growth in the first century. Right after Jesus' resurrection, within less than 100 years, there were millions and millions of people who became Christians. That's not true. Yes, there were thousands, even hundreds of thousands of Christians, people who came to faith in the first century, but the exponential growth, the explosive growth of the early church took place in the late second and early third century. And part of the reason for that exponential, explosive growth was something that happened in 252 A.D. 252 years after the resurrection, a plague hits the city of Carthage. The Roman city of Carthage is hit by a plague. Now, I don't know if you know this, but in those days, when a new disease hit, they didn't just wear masks and socially distance and isolate. They burnt stuff. When they had a plague, they burnt the bridges that led into the city so nobody could come in. They literally burnt the houses of people who died and even people who were sick with the disease. They would do anything they could in order to protect themselves. And that's what was happening when this plague hit. And in the city of Carthage, there was a Christian bishop by the name of Cyprian. And Cyprian called all the Christians of Carthage together. Now remember, they are in the minority. They are the oppressed. They are the ones who have been abused and taken advantage of. They are the ones who are arrested without cause or who are harassed, who are executed without a trial. They are the ultimate others. And Bishop Cyprian calls this small group of Christians together in the little town square, in the midst of a pandemic, when people are burning things to save themselves. And listen to what he says. He says, if we're going to do what Jesus did, so that through his poverty we might become rich, I call you, Christians of Carthage, I call you to give personal and financial aid, care, and comfort to all according to their need, not their faith. He's saying, look, we're going to care for the sick and the dying, even at the risk of our very own lives. We're going to risk our lives to help the very people who have hated us, who have oppressed us, and who have made our lives a living hell. We're going to respond by loving them back. Why? Because as Christians, we don't love based on how we've been treated. We love because God first loved us. And do you know what happened? As a result, millions, millions of people came to faith in Christ across the Roman Empire. In fact, in a little over a half century, just a little more than 50 years after this plague, the entire Roman Empire would become a Christian nation. You want to change a nation? It ain't going to be protesting in the street. It's not going to be being cruel to people and getting your viewpoint out on Facebook. It's going to come when the church finally decides to radically rise up and love the hell out of this broken culture we live in. 
That's the mission. That's what Jesus has called us to. Listen, I'm not thankful for this pandemic. And I'm not thankful for the political, racial, and social unrest that's taking place all around us. But I am thankful for this God-appointed opportunity for the church to shine like stars in the midst of a dark night sky. For that to happen, we got to be willing to live out this counter-cultural mission for such a time as this. Would you pray with me? Father, I just have to be honest and real with you and with these people I love that while I've been standing up here talking about this, the truth is I have not often lived this out in my own life. I've gotten caught up in the politics and the divisiveness and the who's right and who's wrong and who's trying to save the country and who's trying to destroy the country that I've forgotten that I'm not just a part of this country. I'm a part of a kingdom that outlasts every nation, every tribe. And so, Father, I pray that you would give me the power of your Holy Spirit in living differently this week, in being countercultural, to be less like the people around me and more like you. Jesus, I want to shine. And I want our church to shine. And so, Father, I pray that you would move in each of our individual lives. That you would reveal to us what it would look like this week if we were to respond, not in anger, not in fear, not in gloating in some kind of political victory, but that we would live in love and faith and peace and joy and hope that is bigger than any circumstance around us. God, help us to live that way in this age of rage. In your name we pray. Amen.